So who do we like in the Super Bowl? The 49ers aren't in the Super Bowl this year? Oh, I have to change my plans. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 14 through 36. It's a long section, but it all fits together nicely. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a stronger man, excuse me, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, His goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man was worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Let's pray together. Lord, help us 
as we seek to understand these things, first in their context and then in the context of our own lives by way of application, Lord, so that we would be drawn to you in a a new and precious way and be more able to share your love with others. We pray these things today in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. You've seen dust devils. A dust devil is a whirlwind that looks a lot like a small tornado. Dust devils are mostly harmless, swirling across fields or parking lots, kicking up leaves and causing a commotion. Some people call the clumps of dust that gather along the floor dust bunnies. You may have a dirt devil vacuum at home to devour your dust bunnies. The slogan for the vacuum is, nothing escapes the power of a dirt devil. But let's face it, how much power do you need to vacuum up a dust bunny? I can't prove it, but I think all of these terms and ideas originate in our story in the Gospel of Luke. Look again at verses 24 through 26. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. The unclean spirits in our story are demons, sometimes called devils. They hang out in dry places. Other versions of the Bible translate this as waterless places, arid places, or desert regions. And so they're dusty. And so these unclean spirits are the original dust devils. The man in our story swept out his heart thinking it was clean, but instead he made it more inviting for these dust devils to inhabit him. Sweeping out your heart is a picture of trying to reform your life. You've got problems or issues addictions or compulsions so you set out to improve yourself you set out to reform your ways you can accomplish a great deal of reform but reform always leaves you vacant and vulnerable god is not looking for reform he's calling upon you to repent repentance fills your heart leaving you occupied by god and with the things of God by which you overcome your problems, issues, addictions, and compulsions. You want then to repent and not reform. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, reform and you will be vacant and vulnerable. Number two, repent and you will be occupied and overcoming. Let's take a look first of all in verses 14 through 26. Reform and you will be vacant and vulnerable. You'd think everyone would be thrilled that a mute man had been delivered from a demon. Instead, there were some who were so opposed to Jesus that it didn't matter what he did or who he healed or helped. The exorcism left Jesus' critics in a tight spot. They could not deny the miracle, but they still wanted to slander Jesus. Now, the critics came up with two arguments, and it sets the stage for what Jesus will say. So let's read verses 14 through 16 again. It says, He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the demon, uh, excuse me, the multitudes marveled. 
But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. And so the situation was there was a mute man. It says that he was mute because of a demon that was possessing him. The man was mute. The demon uh, created this muteness in him by taking over certain of his physical faculties. And the people had two separate arguments. The critics of Jesus had two separate arguments. Jesus dealt with the first in verses 17 through 26, where they accuse him of being in league with the devil. And then he deals with the second in the remaining verses where they are demanding a sign from him. Some arguments are just stupid. You have to start out by saying that. Uh, Just because somebody argues with you or has an argument against you doesn't mean that it's valid. And some of the smartest people say some of the stupidest things. Jesus is going to be patient, compassionate with these people, but he's going to show very quickly and very easily that their arguments were just stupid. I think one of the really stupid arguments of our time is the theory of evolution. It's even scientists are admitting that it cannot possibly be true especially with the advances in the field of microbiology. Unbelieving microbiologists are writing books about how evolution cannot be true. Not that it may not be true, but it absolutely cannot be true. And yet people hold on to it tenaciously. It's a, it's a stupid argument. It was from the beginning, and it still is, and, and all we're doing is... Show, and, and yet people, people want to hold on to that. And so this is something like that where they don't know, they don't want to receive Jesus and they want to slander him and so they come up with a really stupid argument. And so Jesus begins to answer it. He's compassionate and he's loving. And he says in verse 17, knowing their thoughts, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. The devil is real. Demons are real. They are organized and they are against you. Now who is this Beelzebub? It's a name derived from the pagan god Baal. He was sometimes called Beelzebub or Beelzebub. His name can mean Baal the prince or it can mean Lord of the flies or my favorite, God of the dung piles. Now, I'm serious now. This is, this is the derivation of Beelzebub. The pagans, get this, looked at piles of dung. They saw flies land there and then life would come forth out of the dung pile. They thought it a miracle. Life from dung. It must be the work of a god Beelzebub. (laughs) Makes sense in a weird kind of a way. But, uh, you know, uh, Paul the Apostle, many years later, after he came to Jesus Christ, he would write and say, all that I accomplished, everything that I put my life and heart into, all of my education, all of my career, uh, you know, everything that I've ever done, He said, I count it but a pile of dung 
but for the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything in comparison to just knowing Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people who are just piling up dung in their life as they go. They got a lot of it. I mean, way more than you in, in terms of, you know, money and goods and possessions and cars and houses and boats and square footage and all of these kinds of things. But man, it just next time you're troubled by that, just think of it as a gigantic dung heap. I guess that would make them dung beetles. But uh, anyway, now the Jews used the term Beelzebub in a derogatory way. Uh, it was really a slander. They, they didn't recognize Baal as a god, and, and, and they knew the one true God. And so, so this was a slander uh, when they used it. And so it was a very terrible thing to say that Jesus was not only in league with the devil, but uh, doing these things in the power of Beelzebub. As I said, though, it was stupid because Jesus simply points out a house divided against itself falls. Jesus had been everywhere casting out demons it was obvious he was at odds with them that there was a battle raging between him and the demonic legions. What kind of a strategy is that to fight yourself? It doesn't make any sense. And so it just didn't make logical sense. And a lot of times when you're talking to people about God or about Jesus Christ, they will say things that just don't make logical sense. They're otherwise intelligent people who normally could be made to see the point of something, but, but they just can't enter into these thoughts about the Lord because it's a moral issue, it's a heart issue. And so they'll, they'll come up with these crazy arguments. Not only that, their argument backed them into a corner. Sometimes a person's argument backfires on them. Jesus said in verse 19, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Let them be your judges. Apparently there were others who had a ministry of exorcism or of casting out demons. They did not have the full power and authority of Jesus, but they enjoyed some measure of success. If you're going to criticize Jesus, then you're going to be criticizing your own sons who are doing this same work. And so again, it made no sense. Jesus says in verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is an interesting phrase, the finger of God. It really points you back to the book of Exodus. There's an interesting encounter in the book of Exodus where Moses comes on the scene. He's telling Pharaoh that he's going to deliver the children of Israel from their 400 years of slavery. And he begins performing certain uh, miracles, uh, bringing certain plagues upon the Egyptians. You remember there were a series of ten plagues. At first, Pharaoh doesn't want to believe that this is the work of God. And so the magicians will come out and they will duplicate what Moses is doing. These two magicians of Pharaoh, later in the New Testament, they're identified as Janus and Jambres. They were the Siegfried and Roy of their time, I guess. Janus and Jambres live on stage, you know. So, I mean, so Moses would come out and he'd bring a plague of blood or frogs and they'd say, no sweat, we can do that. Blood and, fr and I'm thinking, Pharaoh, have you lost your mind? 
Why not get rid of the blood and frogs? That would be something. And so, but the thing is, you know, whatever Moses could do, it seemed like these occultic, uh, demonic individuals could do. Until finally Moses brought a plague of gnats and then after that a plague of flies and they said, this is the finger of God. We can't do that. And so Jesus is saying, look, Moses came to deliver Israel. And Pharaoh, not the Jews, but Pharaoh, a pagan ruler, accused him of really being in league with the devil because he said, hey, my my sorcerers can do that. But even Pharaoh had to admit at one point that it was the finger of God. How much more should the Jews be receiving Jesus Christ as the instrument of God to deliver them from their sins and bring them into their kingdom? So it's a very, this little phrase, the finger of God, is a very poignant, very, if you'll excuse the pun, pointed kind of a thing. Jesus is pointing the finger at them. All right, I'll let that go. The kingdom of God had arrived because the king was on the scene. Jesus was demonstrating that he had power and authority over Satan. And then he told a little story to help illustrate his point. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Nothing really too deep about this. Satan is the strong man or literally the strong one. Jesus is the one stronger than Satan who easily overcomes him. He uh, takes his spoils from him. Jesus was there to deliver Israel. Now their argument was stupid, but Jesus was patient with them and next shows his compassion towards them in a warning. Verse 23, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus had come to gather the Jews into their kingdom. Sadly, they would reject him, and instead they would be scattered throughout the whole world. They would be scattered all over the earth, as you know they have been for now close to 2,000 years. You cannot remain neutral about Jesus. You must make a decision to receive him. Until you receive him, you are deciding to reject him. Now, people think that they're neutral, but there's, there are no Switzerlands in the human race. You know, Switzerland, they're always neutral. They don't take sides. But you can't be Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. If you're not receiving him, if you haven't received him, you are rejecting him as far as the Bible is concerned. And this is very serious because a lot of people do think that one day they will get religious. They, they believe that they have certain things to accomplish. Like, you know, our whole society is like that. Now, we, we have ideas about what we want to accomplish first, and then we will, you know, do these other things. We want to get our education. We want to get this. We want to get that. Then we'll get married. Then we'll have kids. Then, we'll, you know, everything is all mapped out and planned out. And we do that in terms of our spirituality as well. Some people say, well, I, I know there's probably a God and I probably should go to church. And especially when I have kids, that's the big one. People always want to go to church when they have kids. And, and but even then they wait. I know people, they say, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to start going to church as soon as we get kids. As soon as the kids get old enough. And sooner or later they're saying, well, if the kids want to go to church, we'll take them. 
We want them to make up their own mind. And they keep putting off and putting off and putting off, making a decision about who Jesus Christ really is. And people just need to know that there is no neutral ground. If, if, uh, if you're talking to somebody and in some kind of a freak accident, a meteor falls on them and they die right then, you're gonna, they're going to find out that they were not neutral. That that was not neutral ground, that they were rejecting Jesus Christ because they hadn't received him. And so maybe you're here today and, and you haven't really asked Jesus to come into your life and heart. You haven't been born again. You haven't confessed your sins and asked Jesus to save you. Uh, better check the meteor showers. I thought it was funny, but anyway. Because you just don't know what tomorrow holds. And you need to come to know the Lord. Now, only Jesus could tie all of this together by telling another story. He says in verse 24, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, let me qualify this for a minute. There may be some interesting information in this story about the realm of demons, who they are, how they operate, those kinds of things, because certainly Jesus is giving us true information. But as we're studying through the scripture, verse by verse, when we encounter this story, it is an illustration for the truth that Jesus is seeking to teach. In other words, Jesus didn't stop and give a seminar on demonology. His point wasn't to open up the demonic realm to you and let you understand the hierarchy of demons and who has more power and those kinds of things and where they wander and all. He's just using this to illustrate something more important than that, really. And that's what we're going to focus on. Now, Jesus had cast out an unclean spirit. He had been casting out demons everywhere it was a mark of his ministry it was a picture to the nation of israel satan was being defeated in a sense he was the one being cast out jesus is cleaning their house preparing the jews for the kingdom on earth sadly they would reject him having rejected jesus left them with a spiritual void Satan would move in and fill that void, not with massive possessions, not by taking over individual Jews, in a sense, something far worse. Instead of merely being oppressed by the Roman government, they would be attacked and murdered by them in 70 AD and then scattered all over the earth as they have been for the past 2000 years. In the context of our verses, this is what Jesus means. He's warning them. He's telling them, I'm on scene. Your house is being swept clean. We're going to enter the kingdom age. But they, refusing to re receive him, rejecting him, open the door for Satan to destroy them. Now listen to this lament of Jesus. It's from Matthew chapter 23. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. And so do you see some similar language there? Jesus wanted to gather them into the kingdom. Instead, their house was left desolate because they refused to receive Jesus. A house left desolate is overrun by demonic forces. In this case, Satan inspiring the Roman Empire to destroy Israel. It's only by the grace of God and by God's faithfulness that he has preserved his people, Israel, throughout the centuries so that he can make his word true to them. Now, the story is really for and about the nation of Israel, but it has a broader application for us as well. As I said earlier, the man in the story who sweeps out his house is like a person who tries to reform their life. It's something many of us, maybe all of us, have tried at one point or another before we come to know Jesus. You recognize problems or issues, addictions or compulsions. You want to be a better person. Maybe you want to save a marriage. And so you try religion or motivational seminars or maybe medications or programs of various sorts. There's a sense of emptiness that comes upon you. You, you try and push it out all the time, but, but your life seems to keep running into a wall. You keep failing at different things, failing at marriages, failing at relationships, failing to find peace and joy. You go from hobby to hobby and whatever it is, and you know that there's something lacking and you want to reform yourself. Some, you know, they, they get involved in these addictions. And, and you, you become addicted to various substances. You're abusing drugs. They don't have to even be street drugs. They could be legal drugs. You're a drunkard, those kinds of things. And so you try to reform yourself. And you, you go to some kind of a program. And sometimes you accomplish remarkable reforms. There are people, uh, you meet them all the time, they'll come up to you and say, uh, you know, I say, hi, I'm Gene, and they say, I'm Joe and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, well, I haven't drank in 75 years, but, but I go to this program and I have to identify myself as an alcoholic because that's how I have overcome. And you know what? I have a lot of um, respect for a person like that, a person who can reform themselves and go to some program like that and, and, and you know, better their life. But they're still empty. And they're still vulnerable. Because if they were to die, they would die a reformed alcoholic. And if they don't know Jesus, they would still be in hell. And so it's th this idea of reform, it's, it's in our kind of our mindset. Sometimes when you start thinking about God, you think, well, yeah, I, I know I need religion or I, I need to know God. I'd better clean up my life and then go to church. You've talked to people, I've talked to people, you invite them to church and say, well, you know, we're living together in sin. Or uh, I've just got some things I need to take care of first. Some have really, uh, you know, what to them are big excuses, but we laugh at them. I've had people tell me they don't have good enough clothes to come to church. They've never been here, obviously, but... I mean, people have this idea of what it means that somehow they need to look their best and be their best and be at their absolute top 
And so as soon as I quit drinking, as soon as I quit smoking, as soon as I quit the drugs, as soon as I move out from living in this sinful relationship, as soon as I go to gotchalks and get some clothes, then I'll come to church. I will have reformed myself to a point where God will accept me. And that's why we tell people, man, you just better come as you are. Come right now, just in the state that you're in. Because you need not to reform, but you need to repent. And then God will change your life from within. And so that's really the point for us in this story. Otherwise, if, if, if you only reform, the last state will be worse. You'll enter eternity without Jesus Christ and thus without salvation. And so God is not calling upon people to reform. He wants them to repent. So in verses 27 through 36, repent and you will be occupied and overcoming. Remember I said there were two criticisms against Jesus. This second was that they sought from him a sign from heaven. I guess casting out devils on earth was not enough for some people. I guess healing the sick, raising the dead was not enough of a sign. They wanted a sign from heaven, some type of heavenly phenomena to take place. Now, as Jesus turned his attention to answering this second criticism, he's interrupted by a woman in the crowd. Verse 27, a very strange verse. It happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. What's that all about? What a weird thing to say, but even weirder right here in the middle of this discourse. You know, I spent more time just thinking about this all week than almost anything else. It really troubled me. Is this just some crazy lady that goes around shouting this out every few minutes or what? And then I realized that regardless, you know, what this lady was thinking, that Luke is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so maybe there's something here. I can't say for sure, but it is interesting that Jesus was about to discuss their desire for a sign from heaven. They already had their sign from heaven, but they rejected it in the old testament in isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 the prophet isaiah predicted a virgin would bear a son and they would call his name emmanuel and he said that it was a sign to them so the virgin birth of jesus christ as this woman is talking about the virgin mary I don't know if she knew what she was talking about or what was going on, but Luke interjects it here to remind his readers. As Jesus talks about a sign, they already had a sign from heaven predicted by Isaiah centuries earlier that the virgin would bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now people still think that some sign from heaven is necessary. Even Christians get caught up in this. Every, every few years at least. I, I don't know if it's five or eight or what the cycle is. But every few years at least, there is a movement within certain churches towards signs and wonders. The thinking is always something along the lines of nothing's happening in church. We just keep teaching the Bible 
people keep living their lives and there aren't any miraculous signs and wonders. And if there were miraculous signs and wonders, or at least more of them, then it would reach people hundreds, thousands, perhaps millions would come to know Jesus Christ. And so uh, the churches begin to veer off into seeking after signs and wonders, having classes literally on how to create signs and wonders and how to heal people and all of that kind of a thing. But it seems to me, at least, to be based on this idea that if people see a sign, they will believe. Jesus Christ was a sign from heaven. Everywhere he went, he cast demons out in a miraculous show of heaven's power and authority over the kingdom of Satan. He healed people of all their various illnesses and sicknesses and diseases instantaneously. People who were paralyzed and had never walked got up and leapt around. They didn't have to go to therapy. They didn't have to you know, get their atrophied muscles uh, back in shape. They were completely and absolutely healed. He raised the dead. All that preceding this where people say, well, we'd like to see a sign from heaven. Whoa, I mean, that, that is bold. And so, you know what? Part of me would love to see signs and wonders, to be a part of something like that. Wouldn't it be glorious to see people getting healed left and right? Demons being cast out? I don't know about raising the dead. That would be a... It would probably happen at a funeral. And you'd raise one person and several others would go down. (laughs) Especially if it was a closed coffin. Can you imagine giving a eulogy and all of a sudden... (laughs) I don't know if I'd be the one to open it, you know. But, But, you know, just... I'm not against that. See, the thing about it is you think, well, you know, you you just don't want to see that. I want to see whatever God wants us to see. What I don't want to do is concentrate on that because everywhere I look in Scripture, people who had these fantastic signs and wonders kept asking for another one and another one and another one. Now, Jesus, back into uh, what just happened, this woman exclaims that the Virgin Mary is to be blessed. And Jesus says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The words more than that are better translated by the word rather. And so what Jesus is saying, rather than bless my mother, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, he was putting his mother on a par with every other believer. She may have been blessed to bear Jesus in her womb to a certain extent. God chose her for that ministry, but he says, hey, we're all on an equal footing here. And what really blessed my mother was when she comes to know me as her Lord and Savior, just like everybody else, and is born again into the family of God. It's not a blessing that I was born into her family. It's a blessing that she's going to be born into God's forever family. And so Jesus, very sharp on this, doesn't let this pass. I'm sure a lot of crowd things went on around him. He's anticipating, I believe, worship of the Virgin Mary, which people who worship the Virgin Mary tell you they're not doing, but they are. 
And so you can, people who are praying to Mary and have saints, statues of Mary and all of the, and have the rosary going and all that, they can say all they want. They're not worshiping Mary, but that's what you do to somebody you worship. You pray to them, you have statutes of them, you know, those kinds of things. So Jesus is not into that, by the way, and neither is Mary. Now, the interruption provided Jesus a perfect segue into his next topic. Verse 29, while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus wove two Old Testament tales together to make his point. The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. In the Old Testament you read how she came a great distance at great personal cost because she had heard of the wisdom of Solomon. Now certainly Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all, but man, his life got to be a disaster there for a while. And how much greater the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. And so if the Queen of Sheba would travel all those miles at all that cost just to listen to Solomon... How much more should the Jews hang on every word of God spoken by the Son of God rather than sit around saying, well, how about some signs? Can you imagine Jesus speaking? Uh, The text, occasionally you'll read that people marveled when he spoke. He spoke with power and authority. But, you know, there's just something about Jesus. It's not that he was a good orator or that he used alliteration or that he was a great storyteller. Or, I mean, listening to Jesus has got to be different than anything anybody had ever heard before ever in the whole history of the human race. There, there had to be a marvel to it, a wonder to it, an economy of words, a spiritual power that is unfathomable. And so here he was, the one greater than Solomon. And people would still step back and say, well, we'd like a sign. The queen of Sheba would be appalled. She'd be embarrassed. How much greater should the Jews? Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. He preached to Nineveh and the whole city repented. And I always like to remind you, he didn't ask them to repent. He didn't want them to repent. Jonah's message was, in 40 days, you are history. It's over. God's going to destroy you. But the Ninevites thought, perhaps God will be merciful. And they repented. And that's why Jonah was mad, because he knew God would spare them if they repented. Jesus was the greater than Jonah who was in their midst. Obviously greater than the reluctant and rebellious Jonah. But his preaching was being rejected. And even after he would rise from the dead, after spending three days and three nights in the tomb, the majority of the nation would reject him. And so here's what Jesus is saying. The Jews already had a sign from heaven, but they rejected the virgin birth. 
if they could reject the word and wisdom of God as preached by the Son of God, no further sign from heaven would serve to change their minds. Thomas Kincaid has become famous as the painter of light, right? He's the painter of light. Light pours out from the windows of all his buildings, giving you a sense that the dwelling is occupied. You feel as though you're being invited in to enjoy the hospitality and fellowship of the house. I think that is the idea in the next verses. Those who hear the word of God and obey it are like a house filled with light. They're enjoying the hospitality of heaven and they have fellowship with God. And so let's see what Jesus says. Verse 33, no one when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket but on a lampstand and those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Jesus had just mentioned repentance. When you repent of your sin... When you receive Jesus, the light goes on in your heart. You are occupied by God as the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. Once occupied by God, you are able to overcome whatever you were previously struggling with, the problems, the issues, the addictions, the compulsions. God sheds light on them and gives you the power to overcome them. So why do we continue to struggle even after we are occupied by God and have this power to overcome? Jesus suggested at least two reasons why we continue to struggle. They are secrecy and sin. First, do you light a lamp and then try to hide it somewhere? No, you don't. But sometimes we keep our relationship with God somewhat secret. And I don't mean that we just keep it secret from others by not sharing our faith although that's possible. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that we try to keep secrets within our own heart. We get involved in thinking or, or uh, uh, you know, behaviors that aren't really Christ-like. And, and we shut God off from them and we hold on to them as if we're keeping a secret from God. You all know what I'm talking about. Isn't it crazy to try and keep a secret from God? If you think of your heart as a, room, as a house that has different rooms, you're trying to have some closet where you keep stuff you don't want Jesus to see. And so we have this secrecy going on, and it darkens, it dims the light that is within us, and so we find ourselves struggling rather than being victorious. Second, Jesus mentioned your eye and spoke of it being either good or bad. The eye mostly, but your other senses as well, are how you experience the world around you. If you experience things in the world around you that are spiritually good for you and healthy, you'll encourage the light within you to shine all the more brightly. You'll overcome the things you struggle with. You'll see them clearly just the way God sees them. But if you start taking in things that are spiritually bad, spiritually unhealthy, they will try to extinguish the light of God's Word. Light and darkness don't like to mix together. And when, when you're all full of light and you're bringing in darkness, you're going to create a struggle. You're going to create a problem. Sin clouds your vision and judgment, darkening your heart and eventually ruining your life. 
Tom Bodette, the owner of Motel 6, gets on the radio and TV and says what? We'll leave the light on for you. Repentance from your sin leaves the light on in your heart. Reform leaves you vacant and vulnerable. If you're not a Christian, the people you know who are not Christians, it doesn't do them any eternal good to reform. In fact, it may harm them to reform. In this sense, a person who successfully reforms their life begins to feel they don't really need God in their life. Oh yeah, I was a drunk. I was a drug addict. My marriage was going down the tubes. And then I found this study or this program or this book. And now everything is hunky-dory. Everything is wonderful. So why would I need God? And reform can actually work against repentance. And, and the understanding that you're a sinner that needs salvation. And so God is not calling on people to reform, and we should not expect people to reform. We don't want to go to people and talk to them about their sin necessarily. We want to talk to them about the fact that they are sinners, that they need a Savior. Because, you know, if you, if you just concentrate on, the, on their sin and they clean that up, you may, you may not get to the rest of it. And so God is not interested in reform. And it ultimately leaves you vacant and vulnerable, either in this life or in the next. Repent and you'll be occupied by God. Come to Jesus Christ by faith, repenting of your sin. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and he lives inside of you. The light goes on. You become like a walking Thomas Kincaid picture. People look at you and there's light pouring out of you because you are the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God on earth then as a christian be ready to repent when you find yourself hiding things in the dark or walking in sin or dabbling with sin repent and then you will find yourself overcoming let's pray father how gracious you are to give us these insights to share this wisdom with us we appreciate it so much And Lord, we've just touched upon a few things in this long discourse of yours. I pray that you would take each thought that you intend each person to understand and drive it home as we close our service, Lord. Each of us has heard you differently. Each of us has been spoken to in a unique way. I pray that our hearts would be filled with wonder that you consider us, Lord. Lord, if there's anybody in this building, in this place, that doesn't know you, that is actively rejecting you, Lord, I pray that they would come forward as we close and give their hearts and lives to you, repenting, finding the power, Lord, not within themselves, but after you come within them to change. And for us as Christians, Lord, may we see our way clearly, not harboring any darkness at all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. What a blessing to study God's Word and to be together worshiping the Lord. Some of our guys will be down here after the service as they are week to week. They'd love to pray with you, hear your needs, uh, share your pain, uh, help you in any way they can. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, come and talk to one of these guys. They'll lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. 
so that the light will go on in your heart so that you will have victory in and over the things that you're struggling with. God bless you. God keep you. Amen.